Hey, I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, ranging from books to podcasts to even meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author and the publisher do not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 64 of History of the Marine Corps, The Rise of the Confederate Marine Corps. Last week's episode covered the end of the Mexican-American War. We reviewed the peace treaty and the four high-level consequences the treaty had on Mexico. We also followed Gillespie and Stockton's life after the war. This episode introduces the American Civil War. Obviously, this was a very divisive time for the United States and something U.S. citizens are still handling today. In 2020, the country debated about removing Confederate statues. This is not a political podcast, so I'll reserve my thoughts on the debate for another time. The fact that U.S. citizens are still passionately arguing about a war that happened over 150 years ago speaks to how strongly Americans feel about this part of U.S. history. This episode gets into the start of the Civil War. We discuss causes, the impact on U.S. citizens, and the impact on the United States military. Every military branch saw a severe blow to their strength, and the Marine Corps would be hit hard with half of their officers supporting the South. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The controversy of owning slaves in the United States didn't start with Lincoln and the Civil War. It went back decades, and the timeline for this controversy for our friends across the pond went back even further. Many British citizens actively opposed slavery since the 1770s and started passing laws to limit the slave trade in their colonies. In 1793, they passed an act to limit slavery in Upper Canada. Forty years later, abolitionists gathered 1.3 million signatures, which is an insane number for the time, and British passed the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833 that freed more than 800,000 slaves in the Caribbean and South Africa. The United States saw what was happening in Britain, and they understood that it was only a matter of time until the anti-slave movement reached the states. 
In January 1808, Congress passed the Act Prohibiting Importation of Slaves, which made it illegal to import slaves into the United States. However, this act did not prohibit trading slaves between states. Twelve years after this law was passed, Congress approved the Act to Protect the Commerce of the United States and punish the crime of piracy, which made slave carrying on the high seas an act of piracy. But despite attempts by Congress to outlaw slavery, the laws passed weren't too effective. Historians estimate that 50,000 slaves were still imported into the United States, and only 74 cases were held in 25 years. Nathaniel Gordon was the only person in the United States to be hanged for illegal slave trading. Before 1842, the U.S. Navy made an ineffective attempt to capture slave ships along the African coast by only occasionally providing a vessel to scout the waters. In 1842, the United States and Great Britain signed the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. This treaty mostly addressed territory in North America, but it also contained an amendment for ending the slave trade in the high seas. The treaty called for the United States to provide at least 80 guns along the western coast of Africa and work with a larger British squadron in the area against slave traders. At the time, it was estimated that around 300 vessels were trading in the area. The United States sent small squadrons, ranging in size from two to seven ships, to Africa and teamed up with the British. This location was a demanding duty for Marines and sailors and most naval officers and junior marine officers served on ships in Africa. Most enlisted marines were sent to Africa as well, and they helped guard the more than 3,000 miles of coast they were patrolling. This duty was a large responsibility for both countries. Britain supplied two to three times more ships than the U.S., but this was hardly enough to manage over 3,000 miles. The U.S. squadron wasn't successful in stopping illegal trade until steamers became more popular. Steamers could navigate water sailing ships couldn't, and they were much faster than their predecessors. The year before the Civil War kicked off, the United States captured 12 slave ships and freed more than 3,000 slaves. The Marines had the bulk of the responsibility when confronting slave ships, and their duty involved boarding vessels and going on shore to stop the slave trade. Marines really enjoyed this duty, and they found it exciting, but this wasn't a safe job. Tribes along the coast often attacked the Americans as they came on shore. In 1843, Commodore Perry sent 75 Marines and sailors to shore to investigate the murders of Americans. The tribe's chiefs denied any involvement, but Perry didn't believe them, and took the three chiefs as hostages and burnt their villages. There are some crazy stories about Perry's meetings with chiefs along the African coast. One of them includes Perry meeting a chieftain, King Ben Krako of the Werribee tribe. After Perry called him out on his obvious lying, the two got into a physical fight. Perry was able to overpower the king, but as he left the room, the king attempted to attack him again. A sergeant of marines shot the king and a few other marines bayoneted him, tied him up, and carried him out of the room. This conflict resulted in a fight between the Americans and the tribe, 
which the Americans ultimately won. But back in the United States, most U.S. citizens were against slavery. However, the number of those who supported it wasn't small. The census in 1860 reveals that 32% of families from states that would join the Confederacy owned slaves. Mississippi had the highest number, with half of the families owning slaves. The reason for the high number of slaves in the South versus the North had to do with the different economies and the Industrial Revolution. The manufacturing industry in the northern United States was well established. Most of the income generated came from this industry. The South's economy was based on agriculture, and they used slaves to grow and maintain their crops. As the anti-slave movement started to grow in the North, Southerners became worried that their main income source would cease to exist. This growth was one of the leading causes of the war. There's an argument that the South seceded from the United States because of state rights. I guess this argument is somewhat true, but phrasing it this way is intellectually dishonest. What is usually left out during this argument is that the state rights were about slavery. The South wanted to assert its authority over federal laws that prohibited the right to keep slaves. They also wanted to take slavery into the Western territories as the United States continued its expansion. It's documented in speeches by politicians, newspapers, and even the Constitution of the Confederate States. For example, the Confederacy Constitution states, quote, The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states and shall have the right of transit and sojourn in any state of this confederacy, with their slaves and other property, and the right of property in said slaves shall not be thereby impaired. Unquote. It also states, quote, The confederate states may acquire new territory, and Congress shall have power to legislate and provide governments for the inhabitants of all territory belonging to the confederate states, lying without the limits of the several states, and may permit them, at such times and in such manner as it may by law provide, to form states to be admitted into the Confederacy. In all such territory, the institution of Negro slavery, as it now exists in the Confederate states, shall be recognized and protected by Congress and by the territorial government, and the inhabitants of the several Confederate states and territories shall have the right to take to such territory any slaves lawfully held by them in any of the states or territories of the Confederate states. Unquote. Another misconception is that the North was fighting this war over the moral issue of slavery. They were not, at least not at first. Before the war kicked off, it was more about economics. For Lincoln, even though he made it clear he was against slavery when he took office, his goal was to keep the peace between the North and the South. In a letter to Horace Greeley, Abraham Lincoln said, quote, As to the policy, I have not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the Union. I would save it to the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be the Union as it was. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. 
If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in the struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe I would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I shall believe what I'm doing hurts the cause, and I shall do more whenever I shall believe doing more would help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be errors, and I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views." Unquote. It wasn't until the following year that Lincoln would decide to end slavery. The point I'm trying to make is that there were a lot of variables when it came to the Civil War. And just like what we saw in 2020, the arguments tore this country apart. And political parties were formed to align like-minded citizens. One of these new parties was the Republican Party. The original goal of the Republican Party wasn't to abolish slavery. They wanted to stop slavery from settling in the western states. They formed after the Kansas-Nebraska Act that declared voters of each state had the right to decide whether slavery should be legal, not the federal government. Seven months after the Republican Party was formed, Abraham Lincoln debated Stephen Douglas on the act. Lincoln argued that the act was a violation of the basic principles of the Declaration of Independence. Abraham Lincoln left the Whig Party and he joined the Republicans in 1856. In May 1860, Republicans selected Lincoln as their candidate for president. Even though Lincoln only won 40% of the popular vote, he won the presidency. Lincoln didn't win a single electoral vote from the South, but with his victory, it became even clearer to the Southern states that their right to keep slaves was in jeopardy. Six weeks after Lincoln won the presidency, the secession began. Eleven states would ultimately leave the Union and form the Confederate States of America. These states include South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. The decision to secede impacted everyone in the United States, and that includes the U.S. military. On New Year's Day on 1861, the Marine Corps' combined strength was 1,892. It was 13 years since the last war, and many of the officers were young lieutenants with no field experience. Many experienced officers were 60 years old or older and were in no shape to fight a war. When Lincoln took office, every military branch went through a period of disintegration. Officers in the military who were either from the South or supported the South resigned from the United States military and offered their services to the Southern states. This mass exodus had a significant impact on the Marine Corps, and about half of its officers resigned. The Marine Corps lost some great officers to the South. 
Marine Captain George Terrett, who we discussed during the Halls of Montezuma episode, and who heroically led his Marines to the Halls of Montezuma, joined the South. The Marine Corps also lost four other captains who were breveted for their service during the Mexican-American War. Even the Commandant was torn between sides, and he gave letters of recommendation to his officers offering their service to the South. But despite the split between Marine Corps officers, the enlisted stayed loyal to the United States, and very few went to the South. But Buchanan's policy of letting service members support the Confederacy came to an end when Lincoln took office. Any resignations from the U.S. military to support the Confederacy were stopped. After Lincoln took office, any officer who resigned was dismissed. Lincoln's administration realized that they couldn't have an effective military with all of these crusty old-timers. So they enacted a new law that allowed officers who served more than 40 years or who were physically disabled retirement. A few months later, they added that the president could retire officers who served over 45 years or were over 62 years old. With half of their officers supporting the Confederacy and many more leaving due to their age, the Marine Corps had a big problem on their hands. They needed men and needed to reorganize. 38 new officers were appointed in early 1861, the majority of whom had absolutely no military experience. To help with staffing, Congress authorized another 28 officers and 750 enlisted in July. This decision increased the Marine Corps' authorized strength to just over 3,000, and Congress wouldn't approve additional men for the rest of the war. The Marine Corps' strength would be an issue throughout the war, and the Navy supplemented Marines with soldiers for some of the naval duties. The officers who left the United States Marine Corps would join the Confederate Marine Corps, which was organized in 1861. Confederate Marines were not provided the same treatment as the Confederate Army. Promotions were hard to come by, and most Confederate Marine Corps officers remained the same rank for the entire war. After the war ended, none of the Marine Corps officers who defected were allowed to return to the United States Marine Corps. To provide some information for comparison, when the Army started to see their officers join the Confederacy, they lost 30% of their officers compared to the Marine Corps' 50%. Many of the officers who left the U.S. Army were promoted, assigned to high-level positions, and given a lot of authority in the Confederate Army. There was a lot of disorder, which the Marine Corps also experienced. Everyone did. This time was very divisive. Disagreements were heated, which resulted in a lot of disorder, especially in the nation's capital. The instability was so rampant that the few Marines stationed in the area were called upon to support the potential uprising. On January 5, 1861, 40 enlisted Marines and one officer took charge of Fort Washington on the Potomac. Shortly after, another 40 Marines were sent to Fort McHenry at Baltimore. The two detachments were responsible for securing the forts until the chaos within the army settled and they provided troops to relieve the Marines. The Marine Corps was kept in reserve in Washington and New York, and protected U.S. property against any riots caused by Confederate sympathizers. 
The Navy felt many of the same controversies as the Army and the Marine Corps. The Confederacy's rise caused the U.S. Navy to lose many of its naval bases in the southern states. One of the biggest impacts was the loss of Pensacola. Pensacola was the only established naval station on the Gulf of Mexico. Losing this important strategic location was a major blow to the United States. Although the Civil War wouldn't kick off for a few more months, Florida was one of the first states to secede. On January 12, 1861, multiple Florida residents, with the help of many employees at Pensacola, forced the base to surrender. Marines who were stationed at the naval base were transferred to a Union ship and sent to New York. The Florida Confederacy gained control of Pensacola's forts, except for Fort Pickens, which resided on an island near the harbor's entrance. A small naval squadron was sent to reinforce Fort Pickens, which contained about 110 Marines, commanded by Lieutenant John C. Cash. The Marines protected the fort until a large detachment of Army troops was sent in to help. The Union would control Fort Pickens for the entire war. Trouble was also starting to brew in Norfolk. The Navy Yard at Norfolk was the only remaining naval station that had a Marine barracks on it. After Virginia seceded to the Confederacy, the state leadership made plans to seize Norfolk, which contained 11 ships, weapons, and other supplies. The Department of the Navy recognized the growing threat, and they ordered the Commandant to move every ship and weapon storage to a safer location. But despite the urgency from the Department of the Navy, this order was not followed with urgency. When the danger of losing naval vessels and ammunition became more real, the Secretary of the Navy ordered Captain Hiram Paulding, who commanded the Pawnee, to reinforce the naval station. Captain Paulding had 100 Marines on board to help with his mission and he also picked up another 250 volunteers on his way to Florida. However, the Pawnee arrived too late, and the number of Virginian troops who were positioned to attack was substantial. The naval station was virtually undefended. To compensate for his procrastination, the Commandant started to make decisions out of desperation. He felt that protecting the naval yard was impossible with the resources he had so he decided the best move was to sink the ships. When Paulding arrived, he was against destroying naval vessels. However, the number of Virginian troops continued to increase, and with little option, he joined the Commandant in sinking the ships. The Union naval forces began to destroy everything they couldn't remove from the naval base. Buildings and ships were set on fire, the hundreds of cannons were spiked or destroyed, Small arms and infantry equipment were destroyed as well, and ammunition was thrown overboard. Around 125 Marines participated in the destruction of Norfolk. Every Union employee or military support was evacuated to nearby ships and escorted away from the area, but the damage done by the sailors and Marines wouldn't be helpful. When Virginians eventually seized the naval yard, they were able to save many of the important buildings on base, with one exception. The Marines who were stationed at Norfolk were charged with destroying their barracks. They did such a great job that the barracks were not able to be used by the Virginians. 
With the southern bases now lost to the Confederacy, the Union Navy starts to prepare for war. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll start discussing the preparation by the Navy and the Marine Corps for war. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. The Marine Corps has many notable Marines we honor and celebrate through traditions or just while learning military history. However, everything we hear in the Marine Corps focuses on the stories that shine a good light on the Corps. I get it. Flattering propaganda is needed to keep enlisted numbers up and U.S. citizen support for the military. The heroism of particular Marines is widely recognized and taught in the Marine Corps. However, the struggles and warnings these same Marines give us aren't discussed as frequently. Smedley Butler is an excellent example of that. At the time of his death, he was the most decorated Marine, which included two medals of honors. He was one of only 19 individuals ever to have earned a second award. He served in the Corps for over 30 years, and shortly after he got out, he released his book, War is a Racket. In it, Butler discusses the military-industrial complex and how businesses are profiting from warfare. Today, you mostly hear about the military-industrial complex from the left, but it used to be a concern for Republicans not too long ago. Dwight D. Eisenhower discussed it during his farewell address. And Butler's short book is a great insight at how an accomplished and decorated veteran sees war. His experience fighting on the front lines and his time as a major general undoubtedly gave him an understanding many of us are not privy to. This is another great book I highly encourage you to read. If audiobooks aren't your thing, this book can be found on the internet for free. It's short, less than 50 pages long, and the audiobook is about an hour long. This is a great book to listen to while you're just doing chores around the house. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.